Well, good morning. We're in the middle of our sermon series going through 2 Timothy, and we have entitled the sermon series, Finishing Well. And the reason we've entitled it Finishing Well is that this was Paul's last letter that he wrote, or at least the last of his letters that are included in the scriptures. And he wrote the letter while in prison in Rome in the middle of a court trial that wasn't going well. We know that it wasn't going in Paul's favor because his expectation was that he was very near the end of his life. In chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, he wrote, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What would your mindset be in that situation? Where would your thoughts go? What would your priorities be? What would be the attitude of your heart? What we see with Paul is that even though he spoke in this way, even though he spoke as though the time of his departure had come, even though he spoke as though he had finished the race, we see that he didn't throw his hands up or wave the white flag. Rather, he was engaged in the work of the ministry by writing to and exhorting Timothy through this letter. He wasn't phoning it in. He wasn't calling it quits. He wasn't wasting time feeling sorry for himself, saying, well, Lord, I tried to serve you, but I landed, but it landed me in prison, so I guess I'm done. No, he was still trying to squeeze whatever he could out of his final days. He even requested that Timothy come to him and bring their companion Mark. The reason he wanted Timothy to bring Mark was because Mark was useful for him in ministry. He was saying, on the one hand, I finished the race. The time of my departure has come, but bring Mark. I got plans for him. I can use him. I've got things in mind that I can use Mark so we can continue to do the work of the ministry. By God's grace, Paul provided a picture of finishing well, and he strongly desired for Timothy to finish well also. Our hope for this sermon series is that the Lord will use it to help us persevere, endure, and finish well. The day will come for all of us when we will have to finish the race. We don't know when that day will come. We don't know how much time we have on this earth in its present form, but the Bible does use analogies to highlight the brevity of our lives. But just as Paul's consideration of his death helped to sharpen his focus, considering the end of our individual races helps to sharpen our focus and recognize our need to persevere and endure to the end. As Paul faced the end of his life, he wanted to remind Timothy that suffering is part of the Christian life and the right response to suffering is perseverance and endurance in God's power through the gospel. In chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, he wrote, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Much of the rest of the letter is spent unpacking what Paul wrote in those five verses. Our text this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In last week's text, Paul likened following Jesus to being a soldier seeking to please his commanding officer, to an athlete competing for a crown, and to a hardworking farmer seeking to reap a harvest. All three of these examples point to someone who is committed to something to the extent they are willing to suffer for a greater good. No soldier, no athlete or farmer expects favorable results without laboring and even suffering. If the soldier, athlete, and farmer are willing to labor and suffer, then you, Timothy, must be willing to labor and suffer for the gospel, especially considering the glory we will experience. What Paul said to Timothy is true for us. We too are called to labor for the sake of the gospel in our daily lives, in our homes, in our places of work, in our neighborhoods, amongst our family members and friends. We are called to labor for the gospel and if necessary, even to suffer. But as illuminating as these three analogies are, the analogies of the soldier, athlete, and farmer, they don't compare to the greatest example of this, which is Jesus, which is why in verse 8, Paul said, remember Jesus Christ. It is not as though Timothy had to jog up his memory to remember Jesus Christ. It's not as though he read that and went, think, now Jesus Christ, who is Jesus? Oh, the cross guy. Yes, I remember. No, it wasn't remembering in that sense. He was calling on him to remember Jesus Christ in the sense of reflecting on and meditating on who Jesus is and what he did for us. He refers to Jesus as risen from the dead and the offspring of David. Paul spoke of Jesus as risen from the dead because that's who he is and that's how Paul encountered him. 
In Acts chapter 9, when Paul was going to Damascus, he was walking along the road, he encountered the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus called him by his Hebrew name and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This was confusing to him because he thought he knew the Lord, but clearly he did not know the Lord because he was persecuting him. And so he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus revealed himself to Paul. Paul encountered the risen Lord Jesus. It changed everything for him. It turned his world upside down. As Paul unpacked all the implications of encountering the risen Jesus, the resurrection became central to his proclamation of the gospel. We've already seen in 2 Timothy how he referred to Jesus as the one who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 through 19, he said, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul was saying that if Christ has not been raised, then Christianity is worthless. It's futile. And all of us who believe in Jesus and follow Jesus are foolish. The resurrection is at the heart of the gospel. If you're not a Christian, we are glad you're here. You're always welcome here. And our hope for you, our desire for you, is that you would know Jesus Christ. That you would know the risen Lord Jesus Christianity is not merely a religion, one religion among many religions. No, we believe what we do because Jesus has in fact been raised from the dead. He indeed conquered death. He proved that he is who he says he is. God demonstrated that Christ's death on the cross was an acceptable sacrifice to make atonement for our sins through his resurrection. Christ was vindicated. It has been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and that eternal life is found in him and in him alone. Our hope and our prayer for you is that you would believe in Jesus and be saved. There is hope for sinners like us. You see, because our King is risen, Christ has in fact been raised from the dead, our faith is not futile. And our hope will not end in disappointment. Not only did Paul refer to him as risen from the dead, but also as the offspring of David. John Stott writes that these two expressions, risen from the dead and the offspring of David, remind us both of his divine human person and his saving work. He said the words descended from David uh, imply his humanity, for they speak of the earthly descent from David, The words risen from the dead imply his divinity, for he was powerfully designated God's son by his resurrection from the dead. Then regarding his saving work, the phrase risen from the dead indicates that he died for our sins and was raised to prove the efficacy of his sin-bearing sacrifice. The phrase descended from David indicates that he has established his kingdom as great David's greater son. In, these, in other words, these two phrases taken together present Jesus as both Savior and King. These two phrases pack a powerful gospel punch. Paul was exhorting Timothy, remember the gospel. Remember 
Jesus Christ. When you are facing pain, when you are facing humiliation, when you are facing suffering, dear Timothy, remember that your Savior and your King suffered for you. When you are in those times and circumstances when it is easy to take your eyes off of Jesus, when it is easy to forget the wonderful and glorious truths of the gospel, you must remember. You must remember Jesus. You must remember who he is. You must remember what he has done for you. It is in those moments that you must remember. Remember Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus suffered immeasurably more than we ever will, yet his suffering was the path that led to incomparable glory. Paul began this letter by writing, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. We are the beneficiaries of this promise of life that is in Christ Jesus because he suffered and rose from the grave. This promise of life, this hope of glory is the basis for our need to endure suffering and finish well. What Timothy needed to understand and what we need to understand is that any suffering we endure for the sake of Christ will be worth it. In Romans 8.18, Paul wrote, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What an amazing statement from a man who endured all kinds of suffering, including beatings, imprisonments, rejection, abandonment, humiliation. At one point in time, he was even, uh, his opponents sought to execute him by way of stoning Somehow he survived that stoning, which is not supposed to happen. And the next day, he got up and continued to travel and preach the gospel. I'll just say it now. If I ever survive a stoning, I'm going to take a couple weeks off. (laughs) Paul endured all kinds of suffering that are difficult to comprehend Yet he says, whatever suffering I have experienced, it doesn't even compare. There's just no comparison to the glory that is coming. Therefore, whatever we have to suffer is worth it and we must endure. We need to remember Jesus Christ. It's not that we forget who Jesus is, but we need to think carefully. We need to reflect deeply. We need to meditate on the person and work of Jesus as we daily apply the glorious truths of the gospel to our hearts. We should not be surprised to suffer. We should not be surprised if we suffer in this world. And when we suffer, we remember that he suffered for us. We also remember that he rose from the grave and ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Through our union with Jesus, we can be certain that 
any suffering we experience in this life will come to an end. And we will experience eternal glory as we reign with him in his glorious kingdom. Paul went on to say that he was suffering for the sake of the gospel, which he faithfully proclaimed. At that time, he was suffering through his imprisonment, being treated as though he was a criminal. Paul was being treated as a criminal. Why? What had he done? He had not stolen anything. He had not murdered anybody. He had not assaulted anyone. He was not trying to lead an insurrection against the Roman Empire. No. He was preaching the gospel. He was teaching people to love others, including their enemies. He was caring for the poor. He was the kind of citizen that any sane government official would gladly welcome into their country. He was the ideal citizen. And yet he was suffering as though he were a criminal. He was being shamed and humiliated for his faithfulness to Christ. Many Christians today around the world are treated as though they are a threat. In many parts of the world, Christians, simply because of their faith in Jesus and their willingness to share the gospel with others, are treated as though they are a threat and a danger worthy of imprisonment, worthy of torture, and even at times worthy of death. And even here, in our own country, Christians are being increasingly viewed in a negative light. Sam shared last week a quote from Alistair Begg, which I'll share again. He said, perhaps it is only in the last few years in the United States that we have finally faced what the Bible says is true. In this world, we are really are sojourners and exiles. That reality has been clouded and obscured by the size and legal protection of the church in most of the Western world. As it is, Christians are increasingly going to be seen as different, not in a good way. We are increasingly going to have to choose between obedience and comfort. The next decades will not bring apathy to the gospel, but antagonism. Paul was treated as a criminal. He received the treatment of one who does evil. If you are bold in your faith, you may be regarded as an evildoer. If you speak the truth. You may be treated as one who speaks that which is evil and harmful, even though the truth brings life, eternal life, salvation. If this happens, we should not be surprised. This is not new. We should not be surprised and we should not despair. What we see in his letter is that there was clearly a negative stigma attached to his imprisonment. In chapter 1, he exhorted Timothy to not be ashamed of him referring to himself as the Lord's prisoner. In chapter 1, he also commended Onesiphorus for not being ashamed of him while he was in chains. Clearly, in that time and culture, there was a risk in identifying with someone who was in prison. You ran the risk of being ostracized. You ran the risk of facing mistreatment yourself. There was a risk in identifying and associating with someone who was in chains. And that's why Paul had to exhort Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. And that's why he commended Onesiphorus. I'm so grateful that he's not ashamed of me. It would have been easy to be ashamed of Paul, who was regarded by culture and society as a criminal. 
Nonetheless, he was willing to endure the chains and all the negative stigma attached to it as he suffered, and he did not despair. That he did not despair because imprisoning him was futile. Utterly futile. You see, he was about the ministry of the word. He was about, about proclaiming the gospel. And what we see is that you can imprison the preacher, but you can't imprison the word. It reminds us of what we read in the book of Acts as the early church began to grow and the gospel spread even as they faced intense persecution. Even as the church faced intense persecution, this is what we read in the book of Acts. 6-7, and the word of God continued to increase. 12-24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. 13-49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. 19-20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of God is unstoppable. Putting Paul in chains would not prevent the word from increasing. It would not prevent the gospel from advancing. It would not prevent sinners from trusting in Christ for their salvation. Paul knew that his imprisonment would not prevent the thing that he desired. The word advancing, the gospel being proclaimed, sinners being saved. Moreover, Paul's willingness to suffer for the gospel was the means by which the Lord would save others. Paul said that he endured suffering for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. And while the term the elect refers to all believers, he seemed to be referring to those who had been chosen by God but had not yet believed. Paul was willing to preach the gospel even if it resulted in his imprisonment so that the elect meaning those whom God has chosen for salvation, would hear the gospel, believe, and be saved. He was willing to suffer for the sake of the elect. Now, some have argued that the doctrine of election demotivates people for the work of salvation. Some would argue that, well, if God has chosen people for salvation, then what's the point of us sharing the gospel? Why do we need to proclaim the gospel? Why do we need to do the work of evangelism? God's going to save them anyways he's already determined to do so yet what we see in scripture is actually the opposite a proper understanding of election provides powerful motivation to engage in the work of evangelism as a matter of fact when paul faced opposition to his gospel ministry in corinth the lord comforted him with the reality that he had already determined to save people in that city in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, we read, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. God comforted him with the truth that he had determined to save people and he was going to use Paul to that end. J.I. Packer writes, So far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God and grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. For it creates the possibility, indeed the certainty, that evangelism will be fruitful. Paul's confidence that the Lord will indeed save those whom he has chosen emboldened him to proclaim the gospel and enabled him to endure suffering. He knew 
that his faithful proclamation of the gospel, his willingness to endure suffering, would lead to the salvation of the elect. In verses 11 through 13, Paul went on to quote what many consider a familiar saying or an early Christian hymn to further make his point. And the quote consists of two pairs of sayings. The first pair describes those who endure and remain faithful, while the second pair describes those who are faithless. In the first pair, he said, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. When he said, if we have died with him, he may have been referring to our death to sin through our union with Jesus in his death. In Romans 6, 3-4, Paul said, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And in verse 11, he said, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Through our union with Jesus Christ, We are joined together with him. We are united with him in his death and resurrection. We are united to him in his death in that we die to our sin. We are dead to our sinful nature. And we are united to him in his resurrection in that we receive the gift of eternal life, which we begin to experience here and now. And once again, Paul holds out the hope of glory for those who endure to the end. For those who endure to the end, there is a reward of surpassing value. We will reign with Jesus in his kingdom, and it will be better than we can possibly imagine. Our future with Christ is glorious. It is wonderful, it is amazing, and it cannot be taken from us. But the second pair provide a weighty warning. The second pair of sayings say, if we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The first line of the second pair reflects a warning that Jesus gave during his earthly ministry when he said, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And we must not take this lightly. It's the worst thing that could possibly happen to a person is to be denied by Christ before the Father on the day of judgment. And Jesus is warning, if you deny me, you too will be denied. But if you acknowledge me, you will be acknowledged. Jesus spoke plainly. He gave us a clear warning so we can know what will happen in the future. He gave us a clear warning so that we can know what's at stake in the decision to either acknowledge him or deny him. The second line in the second pair reminds us of God's faithfulness. Even when we are faithless, God remains faithful because that is who he is by his very nature. Brothers and sisters, God is faithful. He is faithful to carry out his word. He is faithful to do what he says he will do. He is absolutely trustworthy. He is perfectly faithful. Now, some interpret the last line as a warning, while others interpret it as a comfort. Some interpret it as a warning in the sense of, if you are faithless, 
he will be faithful to carry out the judgment that he's warned against. Others interpret it as a comfort, meaning if you are faithless, not in the sense of denying him, but in the sense of stumbling, in the sense of having momentary bouts with doubt, then he is faithful to you and he will preserve you to the end. Both interpretations can be supported elsewhere in Scripture. We see in Scripture that the Lord does execute judgments that he warns about. We see this with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He warned them repeatedly that he was going to bring judgment upon them if they did not repent. Sadly, they did not repent, and he brought about the judgment. He executed the judgment that he warned against. He was faithful to do what he said he was going to do. We also see that he is faithful to keep those who belong to him even when we are weak in our faith. Our salvation does not uh, does not it's not determined by us. In Philippians 1:6 we read, and I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, if God has begun the work of salvation in you, he is faithful and he will see it to the end. He will ensure that you are saved. And in John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He is faithful. All who the Father gives to Jesus, he will ensure that they are never cast out. What we can say definitively about 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, is that Paul is not saying that a person can genuinely become a Christian and then risk stumbling their way out of being a Christian. He is either warning those who deny Jesus or he's comforting those who might stumble along the way. I believe he is using faithless in a way that is synonymous with denying Jesus in the previous line. I think that makes most sense in the way that this hymn was written. I think he's using faithless in the sense of outright denial, not in the sense of a Christian who is struggling with doubt or who is stumbling along the way. One Greek dictionary defines the Greek word translated faithless in this way, to refuse to put one's trust or reliance in something or someone, to not believe in, to refuse to believe, to not trust in unbelief. And therefore, I think that how we understand, how we interpret uh, this verse largely depends on how we understand that word faithless in this verse. If he's using it as a lesser offense than denying Jesus, then we can understand this verse to be a comfort. Okay, you're just having momentary lapses, momentary struggles with doubt. You're stumbling along the way. He's faithful to keep you. But if he's using the word faithless as the equivalent to or synonymous with denying Jesus, then it's a warning. And I think that's what he's doing. I think he's using the word faithless in a way that is equivalent to or synonymous with outright denial. And therefore, it is a warning. If you outright deny him, if you are faithless, then God is faithful. He will execute his judgment. You need to be warned. Yet, it is true that this warning for those who refuse to believe does provide comfort for those of us who do believe. He is faithful to execute his judgments that he has warned against. He is also faithful to fulfill his promises that he has made to his people. He is absolutely, completely, and utterly faithful. We can trust him. He will see to it that he will do what he says he will do. Therefore, when we believe in him, even when we are weak in our faith, we can know that he is going to carry out his promises. He will hold us fast. He will finish the work that he has begun in us. 
He will never let us go. He will never cast us out. We belong to him. We are his. He is faithful. In our passage, we see the recurring themes of suffering and enduring, salvation and glory. What does this mean for us? Our lives and circumstances are, of course, different than that of Paul and Timothy. Yet what we read here is incredibly profitable for us, as are all the scriptures. We may not suffer in the way Paul suffered or even the way Timothy suffered. But as followers of Jesus living on this side of heaven, we ought to expect that we will experience suffering. And rather than being surprised or caught off guard when this happens, we must remember our Savior and our King, Jesus Christ. He knows suffering. He knows our suffering. And he is with us when we suffer. He is also risen from the dead, which means we can be certain that any suffering we experience in this life will come to an end. Indeed, we will live with him and we will reign with him. The Lord wants us to be anchored in this hope of glory so that we will endure to the end for the sake of our own souls and for the sake of others. How is the Lord calling you to endure? In what ways do you need to endure and persevere in the faith? What challenges and trials are you facing? How is the Lord calling you to endure? And for whom, in addition to yourself, is he calling you to endure for? For whom is he calling you to endure? Suffering is part of the Christian life. And the right response to suffering is perseverance and endurance in God's power through the gospel. Brothers and sisters, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you that you were willing to suffer for us. You suffered more than we will know for our sake, for our salvation that we might be with you in your glory, that we might reign with you in your glorious kingdom for all of eternity. We pray that you would impress this truth upon our hearts and minds. We pray that we will know this in our innermost beings so that when we face trials, when we face hardships, when we face suffering, you will grant it to us to persevere and endure for the sake of our own souls and for the sake of others. Oh, would you grant it to us to remember Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.